we have come together here this evening for a very uh, joyful occasion. The 40th wedding anniversary of our friend, uh, Dr. and Mrs. Vijayarendra, which is a joyful occasion for them, but also for us. Because it shows that here are two people who have lived together in peace, love and harmony for a long time. Actually, 40 years are two generations. So we count the generation as 20 years. So they have given actually an example how it is possible to be loving and peaceful for many years together. They have brought up their children in that loving and peaceful atmosphere. And when one walks into this house, as I sometimes do and have the great pleasure of being invited to do so, one feels that there is love and peace in this house. That is not because somebody says anything. It's not because anybody does anything. This is a feeling. And we live according to our feelings. This is an example, and it can be really likened to how the Buddha talked about the Karniya Metta Sutta and how he explained to us the Brahma Vihara. If we manage our family life, our daily life within the family, in that manner, we have the foundation for loving others in the way that Lord Buddha proclaimed it should be done, namely like a mother to everyone. This kind of loving feeling that exists in a family such as this then also has been used, as Lord Buddha said it should be, to be generous and giving to other people. Generosity and giving is a byword in this family. This is exactly how Lord Buddha said we should live. The ordinary person who lives in the family is of course the majority. So the majority of people living within this kind of framework need to really think about the words of the Kanya Metta Sutta, how they can use the lovingness which exists in a family situation so that they can then expand, expand it and expand it so that it becomes all embraced. The heart which is full of loving kindness is called a heart full of boundless love. And the liberation which is the word for nirvana comes through Chetuvimuti and Panyavimuti, the heart and the mind. They have to work together. And when the heart has been liberated, the mind will be liberated too. It doesn't matter which way we start. Now anyone who lives in a family situation definitely needs the heart to start with, the feeling, because otherwise there, it will not be possible to have a peaceful and harmonious life for oneself, for one's family members, and by the same token, for anyone who's connected with this family. Now, none of us are independent of others. Even to get a letter 
we need the fellow to deliver it. Even in such a small matter, we need someone else to do it for us. And we need the post office to put the stamp on. How much more are we dependent on each other? We all live together. Although we have separate houses in which we put ourselves, although we have separate families with different family names, yet there's an interconnection between all of us. This interconnection is mainly experienced through our feelings. How we feel. Our feelings are what really makes our life. We have constant contact with the outer world. This contact that we have with the outer world comes through our sense, what we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and taste. And because of those senses, the contact that we make, a feeling arises. Now this feeling arises because it is a contact which has been made and there is nothing else that can happen, whether enlightened or unenlightened, a feeling arises. And this is what we live by, by these feelings. So it is our responsibility in this life to purify those feelings. And these feelings, these emotions that we have, the only four that Lord Buddha said that are worthwhile having are metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, loving kindness, compassion, joy with others, and equanimity. All others, all other emotions that come and go within us aren't worth having or worth hanging on to. If we really practice what Lord Buddha taught, then we will try to make these emotions our main stay in life, our foundation for our feelings. In a loving family, if there's no, those four are not happening, it will not be a family. It will be a ruptured and uh, difficult situation in which everybody does what they please rather than what will please the other one. One time there were three monks living together and they were all enlightened and Lord Buddha came to see them and asked them how they were getting on with each other and uh, Anuruddha answered for the three and said uh, we are fine, we are living life milk with water. And Lord Buddha said, why? How do you manage? And he said, because we do not do what we want ourselves. We do what the other one wants. We do not pay attention to our own wishes. We pay attention to the wishes of the other two. And because of that, we live together in complete harmony. We merge with each other. Like milk which merges with water. It doesn't stay Now this sounds to me like a good prescription for family life. And without some of that in a family life, it is definitely impossible to have harmony and peace that everybody wants. Maybe we cannot do it quite as well as an enlightened one. It is not to be expected. But at least we have that as our direction. 
And when we have been able to have this as our direction in our daily activity within the family, then it is bound to spread from us. All of us are deploring, everybody is deploring, that there is no peace in the world. Everybody likes peace. But if you remember, there wasn't any peace in North Buddha's time either. It is impossible to find complete peace in the world. There's only one place where peace can exist, and that's in one's own heart. Because peace is a feeling, a peaceful feeling. And nobody can do it for us. This is a very interesting aspect, which is so often overlooked. It's almost trite, it's a truism, but it's so often overlooked that if we want peace and harmony and love, we've got a habit within us. Other people, if they have it, they may help us to see it as an example. They may help us to not get upset and angry, but the feeling is our own. So in Lord Buddha's teaching, we constantly are put back on ourselves and our own resources, our own abilities, and our own practice. Now if we find that within our family there is love and peace and harmony, then this is to be considered as a seed bed, a bed where seeds are grown. And these seeds can then be transplanted into the world outside and flower there. Because in the Tanya Metasutra, Lord Buddha says that just as a mother at the risk of life loves and protects her child, her only child, so one should cultivate this boundless love to all that live in the whole universe. In other words, he tells us in unmistakable terms that we should love everybody as if we were their mother. That takes a bit of doing, doesn't it? Because we know very well that our own children or our own mothers are creating within us a special feeling. And yet, if we don't have that special feeling to start with, then we don't even know what it's like to really love. When we have that to start with, we have a basis for knowing what it's like to feel for other people. Then we can also find out what it is lacking that we don't feel for others. And as we practice generosity and giving and kindness towards others, this feeling expands, which means our heart grows. It grows until it becomes boundless, until it becomes so that we actually do feel that everybody are our children. And once Lord Buddha said, that if we were to lay end on end the bones of our deceased parents that we've had in all our lifetimes, this earth would not be large enough to accommodate them all. We've had so many parents in all these lifetimes. 
and we've had so many children. So as we have our own family in this life and make this our basis and foundation for our loving feelings, for the peace and harmony that we can create through love, we can then generate the universality of that feeling ourselves. This is what the world needs. This is what everybody needs. This is what brings us nearer to liberation because it is purification. And as this brings us nearer to liberation, we are also assured of not only a good life this time, but also a good life to come. It all works in a sort of a spiral way. It starts in the center with our own feeling, with our own family, and then generates out. Now, loving-kindness metta is the description of a feeling which is actually not concerned with a such. It is not concerned with someone special. Now, in our family, of course, we are concerned with people who are special. They are our children, our parents, our husbands, our wives, and so forth. But in order to expand and become that kind of person that Lord Buddha talked about, who can actually have the boundless feeling, we need to let go of the personalized idea of loving kindness. The far enemy of loving kindness is hate. Well, anybody knows that. That's easy to know. But the near enemy of loving kindness is affection. And that's much more difficult to know. Because affection is that which creates attachment. We are attached. We will not let go of these people because they are ours. And when we are that much attached to what is ours, then we are making too much of a differentiation between that which is ours and that which is and then it is impossible for our heart to expand towards that which is not. It's only when we see that all these beings that surround us could have been our parents, our children, may be our parents, our children next time. Only when we see that people are the same everywhere and that Dukkha is their main problem and it's a universal problem. And when we see that expanding our hearts and giving out with this feeling that this gives us peace and happiness, that we then stop this enormous differentiation that we make between those people that belong to us and those that don't. Loving kindness, which is to be a mother to everyone, is a feeling that does not have any basis in the lovability of another person. Nobody is totally lovable, only the Arahants, and there are very few of those around, so it will be hard to find for us. We are also not totally lovable ourselves. So what we find in other people is that which is lovable and that which is not. And if we think for a moment, when our children, for instance, were small, they did a lot of things which we didn't approve of. Yet, 
we kept on loving them exactly the same way. People do a lot of things that we don't approve of. There are so many deeds and thoughts and words done and spoken that we couldn't possibly approve of. But that does not mean that we have to stop loving them. In fact, it means nothing of the sort. Because it doesn't, love is not something that one gives as a price or because of approval. If we had done that with our own children, our children would feel extremely insecure. Children are being loved because they are our children, that's all. Whether they behave nicely or not, everybody knows children don't always <coughs> behave nicely. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But the mother doesn't stop loving them because of that. The same with everybody else. Lord Buddha said all of us are children. He compared us to children who are playing in a house on fire and don't have enough sense to jump out. This house on fire is of course from Sarah. We don't have enough sense to jump out. We're all children as far as Lord Buddha is concerned. So if we look at everybody as if they were children, ourselves included, we'll get a much better idea of people. Now obviously, not being arahants, not being enlightened, we will find some people that are difficult for us to love. That means nothing else except that we are in front of a learning situation. This person we're going to have to try with. And if it's impossible, we'll have to admit that we've failed. It doesn't matter. We have failed many times in past life, in this life, and will again. It doesn't matter. But what most people do, they'll say, that person is impossible. That person cannot be loved. That's not the way to see it from Lord Buddha's standpoint. Everybody needs love and everybody can be loved if our heart is pure. Lord Buddha even loved the wild elephant that came to kill him. Loved him to the extent of being able to stop it. Now this is the ultimate in nature. Obviously it's an ideal that we cannot at this time manifest in ourselves. But because we have the good fortune to know these ideals, we know at least the direction in which to go. And that is much more than most people do. Most people don't even have a direction. Most people believe in this world, most people believe that if somebody is unpleasant, is unfriendly, is uh, not uh, the kind of person they like, that they have every right and reason to dislike that person. It's perfectly okay, it must be so, because they're disliking the person, so the person is not likable. That does not bring any happiness to one's own heart, it doesn't bring any purification, it doesn't make us grow and mature. The only thing to do is, when one feels a dislike in oneself, of someone else to realize that that person is also the child of some mother and that mother also loves that person and to realize that that person also is Dukkha and to realize that love is not given as a reward love is given because one's heart is able to do it 
This is the big difference between the, uh, the way Lord Buddha's disciples look at it and the way the world looks at it. When we see the way the Dhamma looks at things, it usually looks at everything in a totally different way, upside down, 180 degrees, 80 degrees turned around. If we really want to grow and do not remain the children that Lord Buddha said we were, then this is one of the most important learning situations we can have in this life. And if we look upon this life that we have as that I like to call an adult education class, then we look at it in the right way. This is what this life is for. We are extremely fortunate. We are born as human beings, which Lord Buddha said is the best realm in which to attain enlightenment. We are born with our senses and our limbs intact. And not only that, but we are also in a situation where we are searching for the good, otherwise we wouldn't be here, and where the opportunity for the good has arisen. This is the most fortunate rebirth that anyone can acquire. It is the one rebirth where enlightenment is possible. All of us carry the seed of enlightenment within our minds. If we didn't, Lord Buddha would have preached in vain if that seed wasn't there, then there was nothing to say. The seed is in our mind, in the human mind. It needs the cultivation. And with that seed in our mind, we have the most precious jewel. Mind and heart and Pali Chitta are connected. They belong together. The Chitta has the thinking process. The Chitta has the feeling. So in English we have to make a differentiation, we have to say mind and heart, we can't, uh, mind in English is only the thinking process. So with the two have to be purified, they have to be cultivated, so that we can actually make the best use of this time on earth. We are given so many years, nobody knows how many, that too is our karma. Some of us live longer, some of us live shorter. We cannot know that. But we know that we have today. That we know. And we hope we're going to have tomorrow. And I hope all of you will have many tomorrows. But we can't be sure. So with that, what we have, this is our great opportunity. And there is not a single person alive who does not meet up with other people whom they don't like. It is impossible. Everybody has. This is the kind of thing that happens in the world. The more people we meet in our daily life, the more we will find people we don't like. Of course there will be those that we like, but the ones we don't like, they are the ones that are the important ones. Because first of all, they show us that our heart isn't pure yet, that the heart can respond with this life. We don't need to call it hate, it doesn't have to be hate, it's dislike. It's just like irritation in you. So we know that. We know that about ourselves. The other thing we will know about ourselves is that now is the moment to do something about it. To change our reaction to that person. 
And when we have managed to do that once, we will feel extremely secure and at ease because we have found that we do not have to follow our instinctive emotions, but that we are actually able to change them. To change them at will, to make them wholesome. And having experienced that once, it gives us an enormous feeling of being at ease with ourselves because we know we can do it again. We do not have to respond instinctively. We can respond by wanting to do it in a certain way. Now the dislike which arises in us is not only against people. The dislikes which arise in us are also against situations, experiences, any of our taste of our, our sense contact. These are also dislikes. These also have to be watched. Every small dislike that we have changes the mind from positive to negative. It changes it from wholesome to unwholesome, from kusala to akwasi. So we have to watch it and change it back. Because only when we keep the mind directed towards that which is wholesome and good, will it get the habit of it. And if it gets the habit of that, in the end it won't be able to do anything else. The cultivation of loving-kindness can be the uh, foundation and also the practice to gain complete liberation. To gain complete liberation means to gain complete purification. A person who is completely pure is a person that can be completely liberated. Now maybe it is not possible in this life, but if we don't do something about it, we don't even have a guarantee that such a fortunate existence is going to be ours again next time. We ought to make sure. So we ought to work on that. Our love which so often falls by the wayside because things happen, people happen, thoughts happen, speech happen, actions happen, which seem to be justifiably disliked. Well, we have a saying in English, hate the crime but don't hate the criminal. It's exactly the same thing as when your child comes into your freshly waxed floor of the living room and spills a whole glass of milk on Well, you don't stop loving the child, do you? If you don't like that glass of milk on the freshly waxed floor, do you? People do all sorts of unbelievably unwholesome things. Why? Because this is the human realm, the fifth one from the bottom. What is there to expect? People do unwholesome things, they think unwholesome things, and they speak unwholesome things. This is the way this realm works. We can't change this realm, but we can get out of it. And getting out of it is about the best thing we can do with ourselves. And getting out of it means that we have to change ourselves from the person who has the likes and the dislikes, the love and the hate, to one who understands that the universality of being 
is that which we need to react to and confront, not the individual. Individually, all of us have problems, individually, all of us have dukkha, individually, all of us have the wholesome uh, environment. But universally seen, this is a manifestation of being, and our hearts can go out in love to all. Now, very helpful in that matter will be compassion. The um, far enemy of compassion is cruelty. This is easy to see, anybody can see that. But the near enemy <coughs> is much harder to see. And in English, it is very easy to explain. I have uh, come to know that in Sinhalese, it's not so easy to explain. The near enemy is pity. Pity is an emotion where we are sorry for another person but are divorced from that person. We are keeping ourselves apart. We are sorry that the other person is having some problems, but we ourselves are pretty glad that we don't have them. This is not compassion. Compassion means with feeling. Com is with in Latin. It's with feeling. It's empathy, which means <clears throat> that we have seen our own dukkha, that we have become fully aware of our own dukkha. And because we have seen it, we know that dukkha is universal and constant. And therefore, we can relate to the other people, the dukkha, with compassion. Compassion means also that we can show another person how to get out of their dukkha, because we have found to do it ourselves. This is a <coughs> very famous story of Kisa Gosa. Lord Buddha would have been quite able to resurrect that dead child to life, but he didn't. That would not have been compassionate, because eventually that child will die anyway. And it wouldn't have taught the mother anything. All it would have done to the mother would have given her what she wanted. And in this life, we cannot get what we want all the time, sometimes. But instead, Lord Buddha shows Kisa Gautama that everything that has come to life must die. And she could eventually accept it and see it, and she eventually became Arahant. That is compassion. He showed her how to get out of her book. He did not do what she asked him to do. Give me medicine for this child. Make it come alive again. That's not what he did. If we want to have compassion, and this is the thing that we need to have, because again, it is a purification of our being. It's not because other people need it. That is a secondary consideration and will be something that will result from it. It is a purification of our own being. It is that which creates peace and harmony within us. Then, we need to see our own dukkha and the way out. We need to find how we deal with our own dukkha. We have to find a way of dealing with it. And when we have found a way of dealing with our own dukkha in the right way, then we can compassionately show it to someone else. And then our attitude towards other people will not be one of divorcing ourselves by being sorry for them, but by being with them the way Lord Buddha was, 
in this example of Kishagodana. He was fully with her in this bereavement and showed her the way out. This takes wisdom, obviously. But real metta and real compassion, real loving kindness and real compassion take wisdom. Wisdom has to be with it. Without wisdom, we cannot extend this objectivity towards others. Our love will always be subject, according to the subject that is there, rather than objective. When we live in a family, we have joy with their achievements as a matter of course. If our own child passes the exam, we are overjoyed. If our own uh, husband gets a promotion, we are overjoyed. What about other people's children and husbands and wives and daughters and sons? If we really want to practice the way Lord Buddha taught, the joy we have with them is exactly the same as if it was our own child, our own husband. This joy with others has as its enemy envy. That's easy to see. As a near enemy, it has affectation or hypocrisy. The hypocrisy, for instance, if one goes to congratulate someone else on their good fortune, and all the time while one is doing it, the mind says, they've always got everything going for them. Why doesn't it happen to me? That's affectation, hypocrisy. Karma or monks, I declare, is intention. Intention is in the mind. It's the mind we have to watch. Enlightenment is in the mind. It's all happening in our mind. The whole thing is going on in the mind. The whole world is happening in our mind. So this joy with others brings this joy to our own heart. If we are joyful about our own child having an achievement, then how much more joyful would we be if we have joy with everybody's achievement. Our joy would be boundless. We would never know a moment of depression. We would never know a moment of unhappiness because somebody is bound to have some sort of uh, achievement or good luck or good fortune that we can have joy with. Again, it takes not just the wisdom of knowing that this is good for our own heart, it takes the looking at this world and the people in it in a universal sense. Again, we have to see that we're all interconnected, not separating ourselves from each other. Whether we are related or not in this life doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. We've probably all been related in some life. Who knows? quite possible that all of us have sat at the Buddha's feet and listened to him talk and didn't understand. And so we're back here again. It's all very possible, isn't it? Who knows? I'm only conjecturing. I have no knowledge of it. But it doesn't matter whether we're really related in this life or not. This is a, the universal aspect. Makes it possible for us to see how it's all going on 
in a circular movement, life after life, again and again, coming back, meeting each other, knowing each other, going apart. When we see it like that, it is much, much easier to have joy with other people and to see them as our own. They are living at the same time that we are living. They are living in the same country maybe that we are living. Especially those that are following Lord Buddha's path. They are the same, they have the same ideals that we have. And not only that, but even those who don't follow that path. When you look at people, they are all made up the same way. Nama Rupa, mind and body. What else is there to a person? And if you <coughs> dissect a body, you will find exactly the same bits and pieces in every body that you find in yourself. You take a body apart, they are all alike. And the mind is also the same. It has the seed of enlightenment and it also has the seed in there for going downhill. It's all one and the same. The crowning glory of all emotions is equanimity, even mindlessness. It is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And it is an emotion which most people find very hard to cultivate. It's not easy. The far enemy of equanimity is anxiety, restlessness, and worry. But the near enemy is much harder to distinguish. It's indifference. And these two, equanimity and indifference, even mindedness and indifference, appear outwardly to be the same. But inwardly, they are totally different. Indifference is a kind of feeling where one separates oneself from others, where one doesn't want to be bothered with their difficulties because one is afraid one is going to also get into difficulties and also going to experience dukkha because of them, where one doesn't have that feeling of universality, of being together, the totality, but just looking after myself. That thing In a family situation, it's an impossibility. The family becomes cold and uh, unloving when people are indifferent to each other. <clears throat> equanimity is something entirely different. Equanimity is, when it is perfected, the reaction of the arm. In the Mahamangala Sutta, at the end, it says, although touched by worldly circumstance, never their mind is wavered, which means total equanimity. Touched by worldly circumstance, the other hand is also touched by worldly circumstance. He's got to eat, he's got to sleep, he's got to go to the toilet, he's got to talk to people, he's got to look after that he doesn't get run over by the cars out there, which is easy enough to do. And he has also worldly circumstances. But the mind never wavers. Now we know our own mind, if we have ever taken a look, that they are in a wave motion. They go up and down. They move. Now we feel all right. 
But now something happens and we don't feel all right. And now something else happens and it's okay again. And then five minutes later, something something confronts us, somebody wants something that we don't want to give, or somebody is taking something that we don't want him to take, and the whole thing already falls into um, disrepair again. There is motion, wave motion in the mind. Equanimity doesn't have any emotion in it. The mind stays peaceful under all circumstances. Now that is a wonderful thing to aim for, isn't it? To have a peaceful mind under all circumstances. No matter what happens. The worst traffic, the worst drivers, the worst situation, uh, people stealing, killing, doesn't matter. The mind stays peaceful. But, not indifferent. It's peaceful, the mind, but it has enormous compassion for the unhappiness of the other people. This is what Lord Buddha stands. It is said that every morning he sat in meditation and threw out his net of compassion, which means that he, in his clairvoyance, could see whom he could help that day. Because his compassion was such that although his mind never wavered, he could see the dukkha in other people's minds. So his compassion went out to them, and he taught out of compassion. There was no other reason for him to teach. Only compassion. There was nothing else that he could... There was no gain for him, nothing. Just compassion. So the mind doesn't waver of the one who has that equanimity. But compassion is part of it. Now how to regain anything approaching that kind of ideal situation? Well, first of all, again, our universal understanding of what goes on will help us greatly. We must understand, first of all, that whatever has arisen will cease. Nothing remains. Whenever something happens that makes us unhappy, that too disappears. But whenever something happens that makes us happy, that also disappears. It comes and it goes. What arises has to cease. So that is the first thing we can look at. And the second thing we can look at is that dukkha in this realm is a foregone conclusion. You see, our dukkha always arises because we don't like the way things are. We don't like it when it's too hot or too cold or too early or too late or the food is this way or that way or people talk like this or people do that. We don't like it. We don't like it so dukkha arises. We feel unhappy. But when we accept the fact that Lord Buddha said the first noble truth is the noble truth of Dukkha, that it's a foregone conclusion that things are not going to work right, it's always like this, then there's no Dukkha. All there is left is to try and set it right as possible. Dukkha comes from resisting the way things are. If we were to accept, quite all right. So our equanimity can arise through that. It has to have wisdom. The wisdom of knowing that any kind of upset within us only gives us unhappiness, nobody else. If we get angry, we are unhappy, not the other person. The other person may catch the anger, and then we have two angry people. But 
basically the first one who is who's unhappy is the one oneself. Lord Buddha compared anger at another person with trying to pick up hot burning coals with one's bare hands and throwing them at another person. Who gets burned first? The one who picks up the burning coals and their hand is going to be in blister. So it's ourselves that are at stake, nobody else. Equanimity is the kind of reaction where our anger and our hate and our dislike are muted to the point where they no longer give rise to great passionate outbursts. They only totally disappear at the time when one becomes a non-return. The, uh, the streamliner still has the whole lot of it. The once-returner still has some of it. The non-returner has completely done away with it. So what is there to be surprised about when one feels irritated, angry and not equanimous? There shouldn't be any surprise. But what there should be, there should be a determination to do something about it. To do something about it in the way Lord Buddha said, to substitute, to change one's mind. Women are supposed to be the ones that always change their mind. Well, I think men can do it. Changing our mind means that we substitute. This is um, a way of dealing with our mind. Now, if we haven't done any practice at all, we are not aware of the fact that we can deal with our mind. We don't have to accept it the way it is. Because a mind that can become enlightened surely is a mind that can be dealt with in some way. It can be changed. What is actually happening with us is that our reactions are like buttons being pushed on a computer and the same printout coming over and over again. And that can be changed. We don't have to accept it. We don't have to get angry, worried, fearful, upset. It is our own choice if we become that way. And unfortunately, most people think it is due to the trigger that's doing it. It's due because somebody is talking nastily or somebody is doing the wrong thing, it's not being loving and kind. That is only the trigger. It's due to the fact that we have it sitting in here and haven't made any attempt to change it. Equanimity, even mindedness, under some situation brings again that feeling of security that we can actually handle our mind and our emotions in a way which does not make waves. The more waves we make, the more unhappiness we have. The more waves we make, the more, the less peace there is within us. Our lovingness within us gets lost in those waves. 
So whatever confronts us is a learning situation. We should be grateful for it when it's difficult. It's like going from classroom to classroom while in school. If we don't get any difficult lessons, we're not going to pass to the next class. We have to have some difficult lessons. And these difficult lessons again and again give us a chance to learn about ourselves and how we can deal with things in a way that is within the four Brahma Viharas. We have such an excellent guideline in Lord Buddha's teaching. We've got the four Brahma Viharas spelled out for us. And we know that nothing else counts except those four. So whenever things go wrong, something else has entered. Within, instead of those four, or one of those four, something else has come in. And we have an excellent guideline to see, well, this wasn't the way I really wanted it. Let me try again. It's all within our own possibility. It's not what is around us. What is around us is only the sort of backdrop. It's only the mind that counts. The first verse in the Dhammapada starts out with, mind is the master. There is nothing else that counts. And within that mind we have our little feelings. And within those feelings we all know what it's like to love. And when we can expand and extend that, into a realm where it becomes our natural habitat, second nature. There's nothing else that we feel as important or as usual in our makeup than love and compassion. Then we have the most valuable base for enlightenment. Now this enlightenment is possible for people. You don't have to be someone special. It's possible for people. Lord Buddha said it over and over again. When he first became enlightened, he didn't want to teach. And when he was asked to, he finally he did look around and he said, yes, there are those that have little dust in their eyes. And so my teaching will be valuable to them. This teaching is so valuable that we still have it two and a half thousand years later. And all of us have immediate access to it. But the teaching only becomes of value when we have it within our own heart and mind and use it. And remembering that these four emotions are the only ones that are worth having and practicing them over and over again first within one's family life and then extending them out, then we have the basis for practice. Then we have that within us, which is the Dhamma. And that which is the Dhamma within us, that which makes us possible for us to see the Buddha. Lord Buddha said, whoever sees me sees the Dhamma. Whoever sees Dhamma sees me. Now, we can see Dhamma with our own inner vision. And when we see Dhamma with our own inner vision, we can see Lord Buddha. Because Lord Buddha means enlightenment. It's not necessary to see a special person. Although that would be very helpful, it is not necessary. 
because the Lord Buddha said himself, whoever sees me, sees Dhamma. He was the personification of Dhamma. All of us have that possibility. The potential is there. Now that we cannot do it in one lifetime, of course, but we can do something. And that something is to expand and expand. That's what we all know in our own family. And that goes out to others. And if we can do that, we have already the basis for the Dhamma in our heart with which we can see Lord Buddha. In this family here, it has been a practice for so many years, and I would like to wish them, the, uh, also the children, to have a long and happy life together as an example for so many people around. And may there be a long and happy life for them. Now imagine that you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart. And it's opening all its petals until it's fully open. And a golden stream of light comes out of the center of that lotus flower. And that golden stream of light fills you from head to toe with warmth, well-being, peacefulness, acceptance of the way things are. Happiness, lovingness, 
and the golden stream of light also surrounds you and you can sit in it at ease and secure like sitting within a golden cloud. Now let that golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to the person nearest you in this room and fill that person with warmth, with love, peacefulness, well-being and surround that person with security. Let that golden stream of light from the center of your heart enlarge and expand and reach out to everyone here in this room, filling everyone with love and compassion, friendship, peacefulness, acceptance, and surrounding everyone with that golden stream of light to feel at ease and safe. Now think of your parents, whether they're still alive or not, and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them, filling them with gratitude, love and respect, and surrounding them with that feeling of ease and safety. Now think of your loved ones, those that are closest to you, your near and dear ones, and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their heart, filling them with your love and compassion, your friendship, surrounding them with peace and safety, without expecting to get it back from them.
think of all your other relations, those that are a little further removed, and let that golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their hearts, giving them the same kind of love and compassion that you give to your near and dear ones, surrounding them with peace. Think of all your friends and let their golden stream of light fill them with the sincerity and depth of your friendship, with your compassion and love, your feeling of being caring and concerned about them, without expecting them to do the same for you. Think of your neighbors, the people you meet on the streets, in the shops, those you see occasionally, those you meet at work, your patients, and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to every one of those, making them your near and dear ones giving them love and compassion, friendship, care and concern. Now think of anyone whom you don't like or with whom you can't get on or with whom you have some argument and think of that person as your teacher teaching you about your own heart and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to that person knowing that he or she as Dukkha, and filling that person with your love and compassion and friendship and surrounding that person 
with peace and safety. Think of all the people who live in Gaul. Let your heart reach out to all of them. Let this golden stream of light from the center of your heart grow and expand so that it can go to all the people in Gaul, bringing them your love and compassion, your friendship, your care and concern, surrounding them with the peace that comes from your heart. Think of all the people who live in the whole of Sri Lanka, from north to south, from east to west. All searching for happiness in some way or another, all having different. And let that golden stream of light from the center of your heart expand and enlarge that it becomes like a huge golden cloud and the golden drops from that cloud containing your love and compassion can fall into everyone's heart filling them with your care and concern your friendship and surrounding them with peace and safety Put your attention back on yourself. Feel the joy that comes from making the right kind of effort. The happiness that comes from giving love. And the peacefulness that comes from wholesome thought and speech. Let only these feelings arise in yourself. 
joy, the happiness and the peace. Let it fill you from top to toe and surround you so that you can sit in it like sitting in a golden cloud. Let that golden stream of light go back inside the lotus flower. Let it close its petals and then anchor it in your heart so that it may become one with it. Sabe satam bhavantu sukhitatam. <laughs> 